I find, and I still find within this country, that many non-Indigenous people actually still think of us as a risk factor, that indigeneity is a risk factor in and of itself. And therefore, because they see us as risk factors, they can't actually believe or bring themselves to believe that we actually have a whole heap of strengths and that it's those strengths which are actually going to overcome the issues that we face and that you can't take this paternalistic approach and do things to us. That doesn't work. And quite frankly, we were really healthy and happy pre-colonisation. Things haven't worked so well post-colonisation. So how about, you know, people just let us do things our way and trust that we will actually be able to do that? Because we actually can't really get much worse than we are at the moment. This is Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. The colonial oppression of Australia's history lives on today. And nowhere is this more evident than in the massive health disparities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are six times more likely to die from diabetes. Cardiovascular disease accounts for almost a quarter of the mortality gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Many of these conditions, including cardiovascular disease and diabetes, are included under the umbrella of non-communicable diseases, NCDs, which are chronic diseases you can't transmit. And not only are NCDs the leading cause of death around the world, but they disproportionately impact Indigenous populations, to which rheumatic heart disease is no exception. So that means that the valves in the heart, they don't work very well anymore. So they're a bit thick and a bit scarred. And so instead of opening and closing normally to let the blood move smoothly from one part of the heart into another, they either don't close properly or they're stuck together in a closed position. And so the heart's having to work harder and harder to pump blood around the body. And over time, that causes heart failure and it increases your risk of stroke and heart rhythm problems. This is Dr. Rosemary Weiber. I'm the head of strategy for End RHD, based at the Telethon Kids Institute in Perth. Rheumatic heart disease, or RHD, although a non-communicable disease, starts as an infection. It starts with a strep A infection, so that's a bacterial infection. Normally we think of that as a strep throat, uh, but in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, we know that it's often a strep A skin infection, and that's often called a skin sore. Rosemary says while most of those who contract a strep A infection will fight it off with no ongoing consequences. A small proportion of people, and it's normally people who have had recurrent strep infections in the past, they have an abnormal immune reaction, and that's what's called acute rheumatic fever. Acute rheumatic fever happens a couple of weeks after the strep infection, usually presenting as a fever, joint pain or sometimes a rash where the danger is in the damage it leaves behind, potentially causing carditis, the inflammation of the heart. That means that the heart muscle and the valves and the lining around the heart can become inflamed. And we know that if you have lots of episodes of acute rheumatic fever, or you have one really bad episode, those heart damage changes can become permanent. And that's the bit that we call rheumatic heart disease. While the burden of RHD is severe... Rosemary says it's acute rheumatic fever that puts Indigenous Australians most at risk, where 94% of those diagnosed identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. 
It didn't always used to be that way. It used to be that there were whole wards filled with kids with rheumatic fever in Sydney and Melbourne, in capital cities, in non-Indigenous populations, you know, 80 years ago. And while there are medications that help to reduce the chance of a fever coming back, Rosemary says overcoming the disease, in particular for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, runs much deeper than administering a prophylaxis. The fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people confront a whole range of systemic, racial and economic and cultural inequalities in their day-to-day life ultimately underlies this condition. The everyday fundamentals that you may take for granted, having a clean and comfortable place to live and sleep, access to hygiene, to showers and taps with fresh water, factors that should you contract something like a strep A infection would contribute to your speedy recovery. These are the fundamentals that many young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders living in remote Australia are living without. These conditions, in which people are born, grow, live and work, are known as the social determinants of health. As access to all of those social determinants of health, safe housing and safe access to washing facilities improved, we've really seen uh, a whole set of community left behind. And I guess that inequality drives um, a lot of passion about needing to tackle this disease. These social determinants underlie the majority of non-communicable diseases, leaving those in poor conditions even more vulnerable. So where you find the worst socioeconomic conditions, the worst housing conditions, you find the most traumatic heart disease. So that often means remote Australia, and particularly northern remote Australia, so across the top end of WA, Northern Territory and Queensland. But we know that there are pockets of communities where those same challenges are faced even in an urban setting. While non-communicable diseases are recognised across the globe, the high rates of disease among these vulnerable communities doesn't receive the same recognition. Since 2010, the United Nations General Assembly have held three high-level meetings addressing the global NCD crisis. Ahead of the third high-level meeting, held at the end of September, a draft declaration was released, compiling member state obligations to national and global NCD goals. The declaration also then informs what actions or programs countries might undertake to meet those targets. But according to Summer May Finlay, co-chair of Indigenous NCDs, the draft declaration left Indigenous communities out altogether. Was there no mention at all? <laughs> yeah. So when I say lack of, I mean literally no mention at all. Why not? I can't give you an exact answer as to why not. Uh, Each member state might have its own reasons for that. But I can guess that there are two reasons why Indigenous peoples weren't particularly mentioned, is that not every country has Indigenous peoples, so therefore it's not a priority for those countries. And the other thing is Indigenous peoples actually are continually within their own countries tend to be the most disadvantaged. So there's a level of shame around that. And if people actually have to start reporting on the Indigenous peoples specifically within those countries, people are actually going to see how bad the conditions are for Indigenous peoples. And member states don't really like to air their dirty laundry publicly. 
And for example, the Australian government wouldn't want to be seen as doing little in this space, so therefore they might not bring those points forward. Yeah, so we did actually have a conversation with the Department of Health in relation to Indigenous NCDs, and their their answer was quite uh, indirect, I guess is the way I would frame it. And essentially, they didn't drive that as a priority. What message does that send? It sends a message that Indigenous peoples aren't a priority. It sends a message that we don't need specific programs to target Indigenous peoples. And that's problematic because we are significantly more likely to be impacted by every non-communicable disease. So it is a priority for us because we need to know what's happening in our communities. Come the third high-level meeting, the draft became the actual declaration. And even though Summer, and many others, campaigned heavily for Indigenous inclusion, once again, the UN failed to recognise the burden of NCDs on these communities. Summer says while Indigenous populations are excluded from the international conversation, in Australia, these dialogues are relatively open. The Australian government does prioritise Indigenous health. What I think is the issues that we face is while there is the intent to address the high levels of disease within our communities, sometimes there's not the political will and we often become a political football. We saw that at the 2014 election. After the election, when the Liberal government came to power, there was yet another shift in the focus of closing the gap. The closing the gap framework started in 2008 under Kevin Rudd, and what they actually were hoping to do was reduce mortality rates of Indigenous peoples to the same as everybody else in the country within a generation. The flip-flopping of politics over the years has left many of the short- and long-term plans of the Closing the Gap framework in the lurch, where targets put into place more than a decade ago still haven't been met. One of the things I will say is that the life expectancy of Aboriginal people has gone up over the last 10 years, but so has the life expectancy of non-Aboriginal people. So the gap is still being maintained. So it's not that... There hasn't been slight improvements. It's just that the improvements have been consistent with everybody across the country. Dr Rosemary Weiber adds the instability of politics overcomplicates what gets funded and what doesn't. The government of the day is in a position to set enormous um, convening and norm-setting and framework power around what gets funded and what gets prioritised. But we know that uncertainties around who's going to be in government and how programs are going to be impacted obviously has a flow-on effect. And we see, particularly in things like funding agreements, where when there's uncertainty about those issues, it's difficult to employ staff and to retain staff, often in quite remote locations. In the 2017 budget, the federal government set aside $6 million, with $4 million of that to focus on the primary and primordial prevention of acute rheumatic fever, essentially meaning stopping a strep infection from turning into a fever. And so the government's made a commitment um, with that $6 million to fund community-level action. 
And what that looks like in practice is identifying at the stage five high priority communities where there's a known burden of rheumatic heart disease and asking those Aboriginal medical services to come up with their priorities that would reflect primary and primordial prevention of rheumatic fever. There's six million. Yes. Four million is being divvied up in terms of that primordial and primary. What's happening with the other two? Uh, So we're led to believe that the government's looking into different options for the other two. There was initially a bit of a conversation about whether or not that should be focused on research into this condition. And the feedback, particularly from um, the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector, was that we've done a fair bit of research now. It would be great to invest all the money into service delivery. And so the government's looking into that, and I think that's probably a likely and welcome outcome. And $6 million, with $4 million of that being split between five organisations, is that enough money? No. We know that changing the trajectory of rheumatic heart disease in Australia is going to take a sustained investment. We know it can be done. So in New Zealand, there was an investment of $65 million over five years, which reduced their rates of rheumatic fever by 28%. Now, that program had a whole lot of different components, some of which aren't applicable in Australia, mainly because of geographic differences. But we know that substantial investments can impact the burden of disease. Rosemary says while funding would be well spent going to communities that are immediately affected, there's an absolute need to look at tackling those structural and social determinants of health, which may involve funding more environmental health services. What, what is their role? Mm. So look, there's some really innovative models looking at how do you actually provide environmental health services. The kind of rock star of the moment is the Kimberley Aboriginal Medical Service, CAMS. Um, they have a partnership with a group called Nuremberg Environmental Health and Services. And so in the Kimberley, if somebody comes into the CAMS clinics and they've got a condition which could be associated with an environmental health problem, a housing problem, something like a skin sore, then the clinician can ask that person if they'd be happy for the environmental health team to come out, have a look, see if there's anything that can be done, uh, and to refer if more serious problems are identified. That's really exciting because it means that for one of the first times in Australia, primary healthcare isn't just clinical service delivery. It's a whole package that's comprehensive of clinical needs, but also environmental health needs to tackle the things that are making people sick in the first place. So someone goes out, they survey the house, they make some fixes where they're able to, they refer on where there's other more substantial problems, and then a report comes back to the clinician to say, this is what we found, this is what we're doing about it. Those kinds of wraparound services are essential if we're ever going to make an impact on the burden of disease, because otherwise we're just going to be treating people and sending them back to the same conditions that made them unwell in the first place. While the federal government continues to roll out insufficient funding in Apache fashion, discussions of a potential refresh of the Closing the Gap framework have been brewing. Samame Finlay from Indigenous NCDs. So we're not on track for any of the targets except one of them, which is Year 12 completions. So because we're not actually able to achieve those targets by the, the time frame that's been set, the government has decided to refresh the framework and consider ways forwards to actually achieving that target or actually including new targets is, is part of the dialogue as well. 
And while the refresh has been welcomed to revisit and ensure we meet the inscribed goals, it has been overtly criticised for its lack of Indigenous involvement. The Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector has written to the Commonwealth Government to express their concern about the lack of Indigenous engagement in the Closing the Gap refresh. And that was about a month ago and the Government has yet to respond to that letter. So even though, as I said, the government sees Indigenous peoples as a priority, what we don't actually see is them including Indigenous peoples in the solutions as a priority. Why not? Um, the cynical part of me says, there's two, the cynical part of me says two things. They don't trust us to be able to do what it is that they think we should be doing. Their timeframes are actually really short as well, which are linked to political cycles. As you probably are aware, we have an election next year. So they're probably hoping to actually have a platform that they can campaign on prior to the election. And we don't tend to stick to government timeframes. We stick to the timeframes that suit our communities. And that usually means that it's much longer. So their priority is more about their own survival as a political party than I think it is about Indigenous peoples and getting it right. Moving into the space of Indigenous-led solutions addressing non-communicable diseases, what, what are these solutions? What do they look like? Look, the solutions are going to be different in every community, absolutely every community. And that's something that is challenging for a national government because they can't actually roll out a one-size-fits-all policy and they actually have to learn to trust Indigenous peoples within the communities. I mean... An example of two communities actually tackling a non-communicable disease, which is um, mental health, which has led to high rates of suicide within their, their communities, is actually the, the Tiwi Islands and also Yarrabah in Queensland near Cairns. Now, the Healing Foundation has just put out a report which looks at how those two communities since the early 90s have actually tackled the issues they were facing, which was suicide. And what they've both those communities have seen through very different approaches is that the suicide rate has reduced significantly. And I was talking to an uncle up in the Tiwi yesterday, and he was saying that they almost don't have suicide anymore up there because the community actually got together and worked out what it needed to do to address these issues. Prioritising these solutions, Summer says, puts the power in the hands of the community, making up for the shortfalls of Western medicine in Indigenous health? Western medicine focuses on the individual and focuses on the disease. It doesn't focus on the person. So if you actually want to, say, reduce someone's um, HbA1c, which is the indicator for diabetes, and get it to a level which is considered to be healthy, which is seven, often you actually have to address all of the things that aren't considered health-related in a person's life. So do they actually have stable housing? In that stable housing, do they actually have electricity on all the time because insulin actually has to be stored in the fridge? And if the electricity isn't on all the time, then, well, the insulin isn't going to work. The Western model looks at the individual disease but doesn't look at the person. Dr Rosemary Weiber says it's the same for rheumatic heart disease. What's become really clear is that just deploying programs for health interventions that aren't owned and embedded by communities is not effective and it's not appropriate and it's not going to change outcomes. One of the models that we're looking at at the moment is 
being able to use Aboriginal community workers, so not trained health professionals or Aboriginal health practitioners, but people in communities, often people who've got a lot of experience travelling to capital cities to take people in for surgeries or to supervise people going in to have their babies. So people who've been leaders in the community around health interventions and say, well, if we supported those people with a little bit more training and some resourcing and some connections, would they be able to work with families where we know there's a high risk of rheumatic fever because someone in the household's already had it? And what we're seeing, I guess, is that as a real opportunity for community members to broker a whole lot of really important connections, to go to the clinic with people who've got sore throats or skin sores or need their secondary prophylaxis injections and support that interaction at the clinic. And we know that those people can also connect to environmental health services. If somebody needs to be referred uh, for housing support to repair leaking showers, to make sure that health hygiene infrastructure is working effectively, then knowing who to go to to make that happen is a really important opportunity. So linking up a whole lot of services that in some places exist, in some places need a bit of strengthening, but to say, okay, these conditions are caused fundamentally by inequalities that people are living with. And if we've got an opportunity to tackle those inequalities in a community-based way, then we could have a transformative outcome, not just on rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease, but a whole lot of other conditions that stem from those kinds of social and economic inequalities. For these solutions to work, and to eradicate these diseases entirely... Australia could end this disease... There's about 6,000 people with acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease in Australia. That's not a big number. Summer May Finlay from Indigenous NCDs says there's one more crucial step. And that's for people, governments, nations, to take responsibility for the systemic racism Indigenous populations experience. The National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Plan developed by the former Labor government, Summer explains is the first of its kind to include systemic racism and its impact on Indigenous health. The report to actually include systemic racism is really significant because this is the first time it's happened. But to this day... The whole plan has not been implemented. The whole plan is not funded. So... To be quite frank, there are parts of it that are funded, which is fantastic, but more work needs to be done to implement that plan. Think Health is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Health is made in Sydney which is based on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. We're also available on iTunes. Just search for Think Health. We've also got a website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.